And all of God's people said, Amen. What a wonderful time for us to declare the worth of God. You know, every week that passes, I recognize more and more how I miss certain things. Obviously, as I've stated before, I miss the physical gathering of God's people here on this campus. I miss it greatly. I miss seeing people in the community, of being able to really communicate with them face to face. I, I miss that. I miss sitting at lunch with my staff members and talking about life and talking about ministry itself. I miss so much. May I share with you, I miss some of the trivial things. Well, I thought they were trivial. For example, I miss a fresh haircut. I miss it greatly. And I, I never thought that the pastor at Temple Baptist Church would look like Willie Nelson. But it's getting close. I don't think Dr. McGee, Rick, they never had a ponytail, did they? We're about to experience the first if this continues. You know, I miss certain trivial things. I, may I share with you, I miss sports. I miss being able to watch sports on television. Now, my family and I have tried to fill the void, as I've told you. We've tried to create our own basketball league and baseball league and even Mario Kart league. I guess that qualifies as a sport. But we're, we've tried to fill the void. But I've, I miss sports. I missed March Madness. I miss seeing the competition. I miss seeing all that would go on in those moments. But you know one of the things that I miss about sports? The story behind the sport. I miss, like, seeing the story of those March Madness teams, of the players, of where they had come from. I miss those stories. Now, this past week, as we saw the NFL virtual draft, I was able to hear some of the stories of those players and how they had made it to where they were. And I just love to hear a story, and I know you do too. But I want you to consider this morning that the greatest story that ever told is found here in this scripture. And that it is one story, and it is the story of Jesus. See, Jesus is the story. And you and I get to talk about that story. We get to share that story with other people. We get to live that story each and every day. I want to show you how Jesus really presented himself as the central character of this story. How he spoke about it. How he spoke of the story as it had begun in Genesis all the way through Malachi, and then how it continued in the New Testament. I want you to look with me this morning in the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 24. I know we've been there the last few weeks. This is Luke's resurrection chapter. And as you look through it, you see the resurrection events of the morning. You see then how Jesus will appear to two disciples and show them his grace and his strength and his power. And then he'll gather with his apostles and other followers to demonstrate that he is the living Lord. But then he will teach them. Look, if you will, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. It says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. 
So again, Jesus is appearing. He's been resurrected. He's appearing to these disciples, and he begins to teach them. He launches out in like an Old Testament survey class. He combines OT100 and OT101, and he says, I want to teach you about the Old Testament. I want you to see that there was unity there, unity throughout in its story. Now, that's a tremendous thought to think that the Old Testament was one united story. But I would tell you today that the Old Testament, coupled also with the New Testament, is one story. United, it is a tremendous thought because you recognize that this one book, that book we call the Bible, is comprised of 66 individual books. It was compiled over 1,500 years or so. It was... It was composed by 40 or more authors. People like kings and prophets and rabbis and fishermen. People like herdsmen and doctors put this book together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there were all types of styles, all types of messages. But what I would say is that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he begins to reflect Specifically on the Old Testament, he says that there is a unity to be found. It is one story. It is a story to be taken collectively together. Jesus said, this is the story, and I am the central character. I am the one who has fulfilled all of these scriptures. And because Jesus is the story, that means that Jesus has always been the hero of the story. He's always been the hero of the story. Now, as children, we have heroes. We develop images of heroes. Maybe as children, we uh, developed an image of Superman as a hero or Spider-Man as a hero. Or maybe if you were into Disney, it might be Aladdin. Or it might be heroines like Anna and Elsa. Heroines can even build snowmen. They can. So maybe as children you think about heroes that way. But then when you grow up and you begin to look around you, you note that there are some real life heroes there. Maybe your mom. Maybe your dad. Maybe it's a grandparent. It could be a teacher or a coach or a mentor. But they become like hero figures to you obviously in history there are those we consider heroes Abraham Lincoln Winston Churchill Douglas MacArthur Martin Luther King Jr. or even a guy like Norman Schwarzkopf those are hero-like figures from history now I've noted in the last few weeks especially that there are vocations that seem to lend themselves to heroism, military, law enforcement, EMS, firemen. We've noted that for years. But even in the last few weeks, we have been reminded that there are medical personnel that are heroes. There are people like grocers and truckers and others who are heroes. I say to you that we have this concept of hero, and there are all kinds of people that we might believe will fulfill that role. But when I look at the scripture and when I think about the greater story, when I think about our story, when I think about who we are, Jesus is the one that's the hero. 
He is the hero over all. And I think that's what he's teaching here. Is he shares with his disciples. He is sharing scripture with them just as he had shared in verse 27 with those on the road to Emmaus. Why? Because at the center of scripture is Jesus and that equips us and prepares us for ministry and work. When we get the whole concept of what the story is about, we are equipped and prepared to do what we're called to do. So here he is sharing the story. And notice how he breaks it out. He reminds them of the words that he had spoken to them. And he said how all of these things should be fulfilled that had been written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, the Hebrews divided up the Old Testament differently from us. Even today they do. They have three sections of the Old Testament. They believe the first section is the law of Moses, the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And then they will look at the prophets. In the, in the section called the prophets, they put Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then they will put Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets. They'll put all of that together. And they call that the prophets. And then the last section, they call it the writings. And the first book of the writings is the book of Psalms. Obviously, so long and of such great import. So when Jesus is talking here, when he talks about the law of Moses, he talks about the prophets, he talks about Psalms, which is the exemplary book of the writings, he basically says all three sections of the Old Testament, all of that word spoke of me. I was the central character. Now, you shouldn't be surprised because in Jesus' ministry, he had already spoken about the Scripture and its testimony to who he was. In John chapter 5, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Later on, in verses 46 through 47 of that same fifth chapter of John, he'll say, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus had said clearly that all of Scripture, the words of Moses, all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament, all of those words pointed toward Jesus and were fulfilled in him. He is the hero of the story. Some have said that Jesus was concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. What I would tell you is that if you will look closely on virtually every page of our scripture, you will find Jesus. In some way, working about his work, about his ministry and mission, somehow you will find some connection to Jesus because Jesus has always been the hero of the story. Now, I wonder where he started. I mean, could you imagine? I, I've had some great Bible teachers, as I've said, over the years. But I wonder how Jesus just sat down and started teaching the Scripture, going through the Old Testament. There's so much to go through. I believe, perhaps, that he might have started around Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember in the Law of Moses, Book of Moses here, he, he writes and he speaks what we have called in theological circles the proto-evangelium. Now, some of you just almost cut me off. 
Because you said, what is he doing? He's speaking in tongues this morning. Proto-evangelium, what does it mean? It means the first proclamation of the gospel. Where is it? Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent. He's announcing the consequences of what sin has done. And this is what God will declare. He will say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first proclamation of the good news of the coming of Jesus that the seed of the woman would somehow come and achieve victory through woundedness. Did you catch that? That this one would come and he would, he would smash the head of the enemy. He would smash the head of Satan himself, the serpent. But that in doing that, his heel would be bruised. Victory through woundedness. In Genesis 3.15, hundreds, hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, we are told that Jesus is the hero that is coming to deliver victory. Deuteronomy 18 15 through 22, Moses talked about a new prophet that would come. A prophet that would be like him, but a prophet that was fulfilled in Jesus. So I believe that Jesus had gone through a lot of those Old Testament scriptures and talked about fulfillment. But the Bible says that when he was talking to the disciples, he specifically showed them how the scriptures testified of his death. In verse 46 of that 24th chapter again, he had said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was written that the Christ should suffer. Now again, if you go back to the law of Moses, maybe even Exodus 12. Exodus 12, the events of the Passover and the preparation of the Passover lamb that was described actually in that chapter. Maybe Jesus pulled out that and said, let me talk to you about the Passover lamb. Remember the last few days we've celebrated the Passover? Let me share with you how I am the lamb that is without blemish. The lamb that prevented the spiritual death of so many. The lamb that brought life to those who would believe and trust in me. Maybe he stopped there or maybe he even went into Leviticus and he talked about the sacrificial system. For you see, every Jewish mind understood that sin brought death. And that if there would be life, there had to be the shedding of blood. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. And maybe, maybe Jesus had gone to Leviticus. And I know that's been top on your reading probably lately. That's usually one of those books that we will move through pretty quickly. But it shows us how... The Jewish mind understood that there had to be sacrifice. And maybe Jesus stopped there and talked to them about that. I am convinced that when he got to the prophets, that he stopped at Isaiah 53. Just as Philip the deacon would share that scripture with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Just as Peter would write about this in his first letter. I'm convinced that Jesus stopped in Isaiah 53 which we refer to as the suffering servant passage. And there it says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And this chapter continues but can you not hear in those verses can you not see the suffering of Jesus there, there's no doubt to me that he went back and he said look at this you've been studying this all of your life because all of these in this room I, I believe all of them had come from a Jewish background they had heard this and maybe they had been told that it was just the collective suffering of Israel or maybe they had thought that there would be some other suffering servant that would come Jesus said this scripture speaks to me, specifically to the crucifixion, to the cross. Well, if you were to turn over to the writings, in the book of Psalms itself, you will also find the description of the crucifixion. I would point you toward Psalm 22. There, Jesus had already quoted this psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you read down through that chapter, this is the description that is given by David. David said, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What a description of the cross. And again, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, hundreds of years before we think of a crucifixion, David is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking of Jesus to come and capturing the nature of his death. See, this scripture in particular reminds me of the detailed, uh, the detailed accuracy of the scripture. Because if you're thinking of a Jewish death, what is the capital punishment in Judaism? It would have been stoning. So if the Jews had just declared Jesus to be this imposter and they had declared him to die, then most likely, just as we will see later in this vigilante act in the book of Acts, they would rush him and stone him, and he would have died through stoning. But God was so detailed. God does not waste words. God specifically described a crucifixion. Psalm 22, 14 through 18, that's not a stoning death. That is the death of the crucifixion. God knew what was going to happen. He knew how he was going to allow the Romans to come and to bring in their punishment. And Jesus fulfilled these things. 
Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. All of the Messianic prophecies. I read somewhere this week, J. Barton Payne. He said that there were 574 personal Messianic foretellings recorded in the Old Testament. 574. I told you a moment ago that Jesus fulfilled all of those Messianic prophecies. What would be the probability that one man could fulfill all of those things? Well, some years ago, there was a mathematician, also taught astrophysics out in California, that decided he would try to figure out the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies. Just eight. He, he used all of his academic background, he used his skill, and he tried to figure out what it would take for one man to fulfill these eight specific prophecies. And you know what he determined? He determined that the probability would be one man in 10 to the 17th power. I know, 10 to the 17th power. That blows my mind. All those zeros, it's kind of like the national debt. There's so many zeros afterwards. One out of 10 to the 17th power. And that professor said, what you ought to do is envision it like this. Let's say that you have all of these silver dollars. Let's say 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars. And you were to go out and you were to lay them face down across the whole state of Texas. They actually would be two feet deep. He said, and then what you would do is you would take one silver dollar, you would mark it, you would put it in that enormous grouping, and then you would stir it around. Then... Take an individual, blindfold him, and tell him to find that one silver dollar in the midst of all of that. He said that's the probability of one man fulfilling those Old Testament scriptures. Now, some of you may try to disagree with his methodology. You can go back and point, maybe uh, try to punch holes in his argument. But I say to you that when you think about 574 fulfillments, it should stagger your mind, that Jesus fulfilled all of those things. What does it say? It says that Jesus is the hero of the story, that all of this that we have in the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament, it was all about Jesus and how he was coming and how he was going to bring salvation to his people. You and I should know that, that he is the hero of our story, and he's the hero of the Scripture. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't Moses, Joshua, or Ruth. It wasn't David, Solomon, Esther. It, it's not even, in the New Testament, it's not even Peter, Paul, or John. The hero of our story is Jesus. And this is a story where the hero dies for the villain. In so many ways. Remember he said, all of these scriptures point to the crucifixion. It point, they point to the death that I have offered for you. He died, the hero died for the villain. What do you mean by that, Reggie? I mean this. He died for me and you. I know some of you say, a villain? I've never thought of myself as a villain. The New Testament describes us B.C., before Christ. 
And what does the scripture say to us about how we were before Christ? We were enemies of God. We were hostile toward him. We were in a state of rebellion against him. And yet, Jesus loved us, and he came and he died on the cross for us. That's a hero dying for the villain. And I would just want to say to you at this moment, if Jesus loved you so much when you were a sinner apart from him, how much do you think Jesus loves you as you enjoy a father-child relationship with him? Don't you know that if he would go to any lengths to bring salvation to you when you were a villain and you were out there against him, don't you know that Jesus would come to you even now when you are his child? Because Jesus has always been the hero of the story. And he's still the hero of the story. And he's the hero of your family. He is the hero of your workplace. He is the hero of this church. He is the hero of our community. He is the hero of this globe. And we must be reminded of that even this day. That it's always been about Jesus. And it always will be. Because not only is he the hero of the story. He's the hope of the story. He is our hope. You know, when I think about heroes, as we were introduced to them as children and even the ones that I've seen in life, I recognize that there are a lot of failures, weaknesses, and flaws. Take, for example, that hero of the comic books years ago, Superman. He had his kryptonite, right? Well, that was a parable for so many other human heroes because we all seem to have a weakness or a flaw. Even the Old Testament heroes, Abraham, for example. Well, he was the father of faith, but it was his faith that lacked when he decided to go to plan B and produce a child named Ishmael. It was a lack of faith. Abraham, he he was human, and he had frailties, and he had flaws. Well, when I continue on through the survey, Moses... Moses was reluctant. He would give every excuse not to serve the Lord. And at one time he got so mad, so mad because he had dealt with so many Baptists that he hit a rock. How about David? So much character, but also so many flaws. Peter, even after he was saved, don't forget that Peter had a stripe of legalism. Even after he was out preaching and teaching, he had that stripe of legalism. Paul said, I had to confront Peter about it. Why? Because Peter was still human. How about Paul? Paul, the one that writes so much of our New Testament. Do you know Paul could still lack grace in his relationships? Ask John Mark about it. Of the lack of grace that Paul showed to him. He was human. He had flaws. Hey, when you look through the scripture, you'll find a lot of those that have flaws. Paul, as I said, had flaws. If you don't believe me, we have a church treasure here, Dr. Dwight Anderson. And Dr. Dwight was roommates with Paul back at JRU, the Jerusalem Rabbinical University. And he probably can tell you a lot more about Paul. But there are a lot of people, and a lot of people have got flaws, weaknesses. All of the Old Testament heroes, they had flaws. But I say to you, 
that's standing above all of those, you have Jesus. The flawless hero. And the perfect hope. Because see, that's where I want to put my hope. I don't want to put my hope in somebody that's flawed. I don't want to put my hope in somebody that has such weaknesses. I don't want to put my hope in a preacher. I don't want to put my hope in some government leader. I want to put my hope ultimately in Jesus because he is the one that can affect my life unlike any other. He's the hero of the story he had been told about, but also he's the hope. Isn't that what you hear in that proto-evangelium that I spoke of a moment ago, that Genesis 3.15? That in the darkness of the fall and its consequences, there's still hope. Because one will come. There's still hope. And hope permeates the scripture. In Genesis 12, 3, when God will call Abram, he will say, through you, there will come a blessing for all of this world. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, in particular, he will say it will be through your seed that the families of the earth will be blessed. Hear hope. Hear hope. And the hope, again, is Jesus. And here we are in Luke 24. I said Luke's resurrection chapter. And here of all places, the disciples should understand hope. Again, as he's teaching through the scripture, he talked to them about the cross, but he also talked to them about the resurrection. I believe there is no doubt that he turned to Psalm 1610. Because Psalm 1610 would be where Peter would draw for his message, where Paul would draw for his message. There again, Psalm 1610, David would write, and he would say, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David realized he was writing this about the coming Messiah. I don't think he grasped it fully. But looking back through the lens of the New Testament, looking back through Jesus' interpretation, Peter's interpretation, Paul's interpretation, this is the idea that the Messiah, the Christ, would rise again. Right there, Psalm 16, 10. And Jesus had helped our understanding during his earthly ministry. We wouldn't have ever connected Jonah with the resurrection. Not on our own. But Jesus said that the sign of Jonah would be apparent to all. The idea that there would be one that would be in, in the belly of the earth for three days. And then there would be a resurrection, Jesus said. The sign of Jonah. Hosea chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. The revival, the renewal on that third day. I say that through the prophets, you have this, this uh, confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus was the hope, and he still is. One of my favorite passages is found in Job. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. And Job had gone through so many losses. I know that many of us, we feel like we've gone through a lot. And many have. But Job went through so much. He went through so much more than we could ever dream. Of loss, 
of disappointment. And yet, in Job 19, verses 25 through 27, Job will make this statement. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that there is the hope of the resurrection itself. I know that one of these days when all of this stuff is passed, when all the disappointment has faded away, when all of the pain is somehow passed into the past, he said, when all of these things happen, I know that I'm going to stand and I'm going to see my Savior alive. And there's going to be the resurrection promise for my life as I recognize the redemption through him. That's hope. And it permeates the Old Testament. It permeates the New Testament. And it should permeate our lives. Right where you are right now, I want you to hear that there is a story that's going on. That God is writing a story and that his son Jesus is the hero of the story. It's all going to culminate in him. He's the one that can come to you. He's the one that can bring life. And because he's the hero, he's your hope. And some of you may be weary right now and you may be anxious. There may be all kinds of uncertainties ahead of us. We're working through things right now to see how eventually our physical regathering will take place. But I want you to know that, it, that who we are and what we're going through that in the midst of it, there's still hope in Jesus Christ. And today, as you sit there by that kitchen table, on that couch, I encourage you to call out to Christ. To go to the hero. Stop putting your faith in other things. Put it in him. Trust him. And trust him in confidence and in hope. Today, if you need somebody to pray with you, about this hope. If you need to talk to somebody about a relationship in Jesus, maybe it's your first time commitment or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time but you just need some type of renewal. You need to pray through some things with people. I want to encourage you to text us again. Text needs to 97,000. We'll get back with you. We'll pray for you. We'll lift you up. Because during this time, what God has called us all to do to be reminded that Jesus is the hero and Jesus is the hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word, which is the basis of everything that we do. And God, right now, I pray that this word that has been spoken, that just as Jesus gave confidence to his disciples, that this word this morning will give confidence to your disciples who are watching this broadcast. God, I pray that you would renew, that you would lift up on eagle's wings those who are weary, that you would remind them that you are the hero of their lives, that you are the one who loved them before they were saved, and you love them oh so dearly now as your children. And God, I pray 
that we would place our hope and our confidence even during these days with you. We pray it in Jesus' name.